0: Tomorrow, is anybody else hearing a tapping? There's things that happen in my brain. I don't know that they always happen in reality, right? Um, So tomorrow we're celebrating Martin Luther King Day. Why do we celebrate a day like that? Is it because he was a perfect man and we should emulate his perfection? Or is it because he was a man who gave his literal life for something bigger than himself? Because he was used at the sacrifice of his life, he was used to make it better. Did he finish the work? No. But did he move that work forward in monumental ways worthy of remembering? Yeah. I think that's so much like uh, our lives. We don't, we don't get to finish the bigger things we start, the bigger things God puts us in the middle of. We do get to answer the same question. Will I give my life for something bigger than myself. We'll, get, well, I give my life to join into work that is worth doing, that's bigger, that puts people together. And one of the futilities of living under the fall is we don't ever get to see the work done. It doesn't finish. It doesn't finish this side of heaven. It doesn't finish till that trumpet sounds. But until then, we celebrate the work that has been done. We celebrate the cost people have paid to do it. More so, we celebrate the gospel work that is to be done, right? And until then, we work. Till then, we labor. Till then, we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And so, let's pray. Um, and then we're going to be in Ephesians four seventeen through twenty four today. So, Father, I pray. I pray both uh, to acknowledge God that you have done a work and a movement within our country that's moved us forward. And we pray and we grieve and we long and we hope because there's work to be done. Father, we rejoice that we have these examples of people who give their lives for bigger things. And Father, I just pray that the gospel would do a work in every single one in this room. That we would give our lives for something bigger, something eternal, something worth doing. For the name of Jesus Christ. For his justice to flow down like waters until he comes and he establishes an ever ending everlasting kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace forever and ever and ever. God, that kingdom's ours God we get we 've gotten that kingdom, and oh Father, I pray that we'd be people who give our lives for that kingdom to advance. we' pray that in the name of your son Jesus amen um, so we've talked about the new year, great time to restart, great time to flip the calendar, fresh start. Uh, But you've actually started now, and you've probably found that that calendar flip didn't change your life. Didn't change mine either, right? But you're back at school. You're in a new semester. uh, You're dropping the kids back off. They're in a new semester. Uh, You've gotten out of the couple of days off each week, holiday routine where it's not quite in the same place all the time, and you're moving around, and, 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 and you've got some extra break time, and now you're back to Monday through Friday, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, school or work or whatever your routine is. And so I want to challenge today, as we do start a fresh semester, a fresh season, let's restart strong. So what kind of habits need to be placed into your life right now intentionally so that spiritually what happens over the semester and spiritually what happens over this year is intentionally designed for you to grow, intentionally designed for you to change over time versus you wake up at the end of this semester and you got through it like you got through last semester. And all those goals and all those plans and all those things that you were hoping for your spiritual life, they just never happen. They just never materialize. And so what I want to use this message for to press on your heart and to press on my heart is that we restart strong. That as we get back to routines, we put some intentional things in those routines so that change happens. As we restart the normal rhythms of life, that we insert some intentional spiritual rhythms in our life so that we end up different incrementally, different bit by bit over the coming semester, over the coming year. And so we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. We just did a quick mini-series on just kind of resetting, refreshing our vision, that vision for your life, your Christian life, that that vision and mission for your your family, for the groups you're a part of, for the ministries you're a part of, for the church. Something that together, not by yourself, but together we desire to see the glory of God enjoyed and, and spread because we are absolutely all pleasure seekers. It's our greatest pleasure found in God. And what we delight in we also spread and so spread from here to the ends of the earth and we do that how by making Reproducing disciples disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples That are marked by three key areas, right that we treasure christ supremely. We're pleasure seekers and we're treasure hunters That we engage the lost in word and deed We don't just show off the gospel like our lives can somehow magically awaken people spiritually But we must show off the gospel by what we do and how we serve people by our works We also share the gospel with our words because it is the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so we serve and we share. And that we intentionally foster genuine relationships of growth and change. Relationships that cross the barriers the world puts up. Relationships that go deeper into the uncomfortable places in each other's lives because we want to see transformation take place. So resetting that vision, and we close it with three questions that we're all going to have to ask and we're all going to have to answer if it's going to move from the words on the back of your bulletin and maybe we got a good font and maybe we didn't get a good font, but it sure looks good there. Moving it from words on a page to actually living out in your life and in your family and in your circles. Are you willing to suffer and sacrifice to see it become a reality? Are you willing to suffer when it's hard? Are you willing to suffer when it's opposed? Are you willing to sacrifice to see it become a reality in your life? Secondly, this book right here, are you committed to this book? And not just are you committed to it mentally to defend it, but are you saturated in this book so that it's a part of your life and who you are? Will you cling to this book and be committed to this book when it is not popular, when it is opposed, when it is spoken against, when it is attacked? Have you saturated your life with this book so much that you can stand? And then the last question, are you willing to roll up your sleeves and go to work? Right. I'm sure there is a billion people that have lived and died with great dreams that never left their pillow. Great dreams that never left their mind's image. Great dreams because they never became great work to make them happen. And so are we willing to go to work? Today it's a standalone message, just real quickly. Um, that basically makes a declaration. You are holy. You ever thought about that? You are a saint of God. You are 100% righteous. And you're like, well, I don't feel that way. I, I look in the mirror. That's not what I see, but that's exactly what God has declared, which means that's exactly what's true. And if that is what's true about you, then what is the challenge this semester? What is the challenge this six months, this year? You are holy. Go live out holiness. You are righteous. It's already established and declared by the work of Jesus, not your own work. So go do righteousness. And this is the revolutionary, completely 180 distinction between Christianity and every other self-help program out there. Self-help says fight against you, fight against your bad habits, fight against your bad thoughts to become a new you. And what does Christianity say? You are a new you fight to be like the new you fight to become who you already are And that's a whole different motivation. and That's a whole different framework for change, isn't it? I'm no longer fighting against my nature to become new. I am new And i'm fighting to live the newness that god's placed in my life. So that's what we'll be doing ephesians chapter 4 17 through 24 In verse 17 now I say this and testify in the lord And we're taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You are holy. Pursue it this year. You are holy. Pursue it this year. Let's talk about the the three components of that. First, don't go back to your old way of living. Don't go back to your old way of living. As humans, we have this amazing capacity to keep doing the same thing over and over, to get in the rut of routine and do the same thing over and over and over and over again and expect something to change. We have this amazing capacity to keep doing it and thinking, this time it's going to be better. This time it's going to fix it. This time I'm going to get there. And of course it doesn't, because that's the definition of insanity, isn't it? To do the same thing and expect a different result. And so, as we think about like our lives before Christ, they didn't satisfy us. They left this big pit of emptiness, this big pit of destruction, this wake of little deaths within relationships, and this wake of little deaths separating us further and further of God, These wake of little deaths within us. And yet, those mentalities those attitudes, those thoughts, those values, those actions, we keep slipping back into them, thinking this time it will satisfy me. This time it will be different. This relationship, it will be different. This grade, it will be different. This job, it will be different. This promotion, it will be different. This amount of money, it will be different. And Paul encourages us, Paul challenges us, don't go back to thinking that your values, thoughts, and actions pre-Christ will somehow satisfy you now. Let's look at it. A quick overview. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do because you have learned Christ personally in relationship. And since that's true, then the challenge is with a renewed mind, live a new life. With a renewed mind, live a new life uh, in, in this chapter, we get the second of five times where the word walk is used in Ephesians. So, Ephesians 1 through 3 is this like, beautiful unpacking of the gospel. Like, if you read Ephesians 1 through 3, it is one of the pinnacle doctrinal. Three chapters that we have in scripture like it clearly unpacks the gospel in one of the most concise perfect Sections we have in chapter two It's like you're dead in your sins and trespasses god who is rich in mercy made you alive together with christ grace You have been saved by faith not by your works lest anybody should boast like it's this pinnacle clear gospel presentation in chapter three It talks about you have been loved with this love that you can't possibly comprehend the heights and the depths and the breadth of it Without being with each other It is this beautiful unpacking of the church where it was Gentiles, all of humanity, and Jewish people. And then Jesus, by his death, tore down the separation, and he put all kinds of diverse people together by his blood, not by their old identities, in this thing called the church. It's a beautiful three chapters. But those three chapters aren't meant to just be like, admired, wow, that's great doctrine. Because in chapters 4 through 6, walk, 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 walk. Live out the doctrine, live out what I just taught you about the gospel, live out what I just taught you about the church. Your lifestyle and your pattern of life, that's what walk means. Your lifestyle and your pattern of life should reflect these truths. They're not meant to just fill up your mind. They're meant to come out in your life. And so don't go back to this old way of living in in chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of the gospel the first time it's used Meaning that this gospel has saved you, this gospel has changed you, now let your life come up to the level of this transformation, this gospel that's happened inside of you. And then he goes through uh, and unpacks a lot of things from the church, a lot of things about unity, and he kind of resumes the thought in verse 17 where we are. But he states the negative version of that now. You must no longer walk the way the Gentiles do. You must no longer walk the way the Gentiles do. He's talking to a Gentile church. So what is he saying to them? You must not live the way you used to live before you met Jesus. You must no longer do that. And if you're still living the way you lived before you met Jesus, guess what? Stop. You must no longer let the pattern and habits of your life be the same as they were before you met Jesus. Now there's these movements within modern Christianity that say there are certain types of sins, habits, identities, and preferences that you don't have to change to become a Christian. But that's not how this works. That's not how this works at all. There is a way of living apart from Christ that you can and you must, and that the power of God invades your life to actually change you. Christianity is about being changed. It's not about being the same. It's not about simply embracing and accommodating the sinful patterns of your life. It is about nuclear option, destroying them by the internal change of a new heart and a new life, coming out into your life and behavior. Don't live that way. Don't go back to to that life. Don't go back to the value systems and the attitudes that you had when you were a Gentile. That is when you didn't know God. When you didn't have any access to who He is and what He's like. You must no longer... Live as the Gentiles do. Well, how did the Gentiles live in Rome? And I want to go into this because I think it's real easy for Oh, man, they were brutal. And the Romans were brutal. They invented ways to torture and kill people that maximized their life and maximized the time so that they could suffer longer and more. That's what the cross was. That you would sit on there for days and days and days struggling to suffocate. Or push up against the nails in your hands and feet to breathe. They were brutal. Some of them. Some of them would let you borrow milk. Some of them were very moral. Some of them were great uh, philosophers. Some of them, the hedonists, would indulge every desire that they could possibly indulge. Some of them, the Stoics, would be very much honor and dignity and, and, and do that. Some of them were really great citizens of the Roman Empire. Which means you'd love for them to live next to you. And I want you to see that because when we get into the loaded words, the temptation is to see, oh, that's the sinners. Oh, the Gentiles, that's the bad people. Yeah, don't be like the bad people. And we don't see ourselves. We don't see the way we used to live because we were pretty good people before we met Jesus. Jesus. We don't see the way we used to think and the things we used to value because, you know, they they were pretty good. They, they, you know, they weren't godly, but they were pretty good, and I think they were okay, and they kind of fit with being a good citizen. And so when he says don't live like the Gentiles, he's talking about the brutal Romans, and he's also talking about the really moral, really honorable, really good citizen Romans, and he's talking about you, and he's talking about me, right? And so don't live like the Gentiles do. Then he... he, gives this diagnosis of the, the internal workings of somebody that is without God. You before you met Christ, me before I, I met Christ. He gives the internal workings there. He diagnoses us on the inside. And I want you to see every single part of, of human every single part of you as a person, every component that makes up you is fall was fallen or is fallen. Right? So minds. Their understanding was darkened, right? They were futile in their thinking and their understanding was darkened. Our minds, our thought processes don't work right. Our spiritual lives, we're alienated from life and God. Our affections, our hearts are hardened, right? That, they are, that they're stone-like. They're, they're, they're unsensitive to God and His Word and His voice in our lives. And physically, given up to sensual desires. And of course, decay, age, and death. Every part of you has fallen, and you know what that means? Every part of you is part of the work of redemption. So when we have disordered emotions, redemption floods in and works to reorder and to bring stability into our emotional lives. There's a great gospel ministry of counsel and care. Our thought processes are all kinds of messed up. And so that's why Paul is like, hey, have the mind of Christ. Right? So that our minds, our renewed thinking happens. um, That our spiritual lives, we are brought from dead in our sins and trespasses to made alive with Christ spiritually and then physically we're waiting on that one. We're aging our way into that one. That's when Jesus comes back and everything's right. But until then, he has given us this amazing common grace ministry of medical care that keeps these bodies bandaged and patched up and functioning and as healthy as they can to live as long as they can for as much purpose as they can for God until one day the new body is given to us that doesn't wear out, that doesn't die and that doesn't get sick. We're fallen in every way and redemption is meant to touch us in every way. So it's like we are futile in our thinking. Meaning, the most simply, our minds cannot accomplish the purpose for which they were designed. Futile. They can't reach the outcome. They can't reach the purpose. Why do you have a mind? To know and love God. Why did God give you thinking and feeling and seeing capacities? Because he, was, he, was, he had re- revealed himself to you so that you could know him. And if your mind can't, is fallen and can't know him, then it cannot reach the purpose for its existence. It's futile. But it's not just your mind and then your understanding is darkened. Your thought processes were confused, were dark as opposed to light, were, were cloudy as opposed to clear. That's what happens to your mind. That's what happens to my mind. We're alienated from God. That is, we are foreign, uh, We are foreigners to life. We're foreigners to God's life within us. And to be foreign from God, the God of life, is to be in death. Due to the hardness of your heart. Your heart is the control center of your life. Uh, a guy named David Pallison put it this way. Whatever rules your heart will have an, in, uh, uh, an inexistent um I can't think of the word. Whatever rules your heart will have an inescapable influence over your life. Whatever rules your heart will exercise an inescapable influence over your life. And if you're apart from God, you have a hardness of heart. Uh, Ezekiel talks about hearts of stone. And you think about what can, you, you can batter a stone all day. But, but there's no feeling. It's hard. It's, you're, you're continually hitting up against something hard. And that's what it is like to be apart from God. But it's not just what it's like to be apart from God if you're lost. Think about, as a believer, when you drift from God, how your heart starts to close up. Think about how you dr- when you drift from God, you stop having those tinges of conviction. You stop having those moments where where, where you find that God's voice is speaking and pushing and prodding and encouraging. And you find that you're closing up and closing up and it's harder and it's harder and nothing's getting in and it's quieter. That's who we are. That's who we are on the inside apart from God. That's the diagnosis. And whoever we are on the inside will always work its way outside. Whoever we are on the inside will always work its way outside to our behavior, to our lifestyle. And that's what he talks about in the next few verses. You've become calloused in your behavior. Everybody knows what a callous is, right? You work with your hands and that nice tender skin that's there and those soft little hands that you have. they start and The skin peels off of it. And it's really, really tender and it's really, really sore for a day or two. And then what happens? This hard, crusty, thick skin starts to grow back over it called a callus, and now you can touch it, and you can do it, and you can work with it all you want, and guess what's happened? It's desensitized. You don't feel anything anymore. And that's what it's like to be apart from God. Is it a process of, uh, over a process of decisions and over a process of actions and over a process of choices, you become less and less and less sensitive to anything that God is saying. That's why we find, like, if you look at the, the statistics, people coming to faith in Christ, like, the vast majority come to faith in Christ as children. The next group is teenagers. The next group is college. Then you find this drastic dropping off the older and older you get. Because you've got more and more calloused layers over the top of your heart. The more you live, the more you choose, the more you ingrain yourself. Now, the wonderful news of God is he's not limited by your callouses. He can tear them off at any point. He can take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh by the work of his gospel and by the work of his spirit. And there is nobody beyond the reach of his gospel. But there's a danger to callousing. There's also a danger when you and I callous. As followers of Jesus... It's so easy to to just ignore that nudge of the Spirit, to just ignore that push to the Word, to just ignore that that set of things that God is prodding in us to either remove or to encourage us with or to walk towards. And we find that it's easy for us to start forming calluses again, isn't it? And I'm not nearly as sensitive to God as I once was. I'm not nearly as sensitive to To his voice as I once was. I'm not nearly as in tune to him as I once was. And that's exactly what Paul is challenging you and I to. Don't go back to your old way of living. Don't go back to your old values. Don't go back to your old attitudes. Don't go back to your old actions. Don't let yourself callous again to the voice of God in your life. And then he gets into the specific behaviors. And again, I want you to see you here. Because these words are really loaded. These words are the end of a process, not the beginning. Meaning it's a thousand steps to get to these words, a thousand little steps to get to these words, a process to get to these words. And that process is the little things that you and I ignore about our our lives, the little convictions we ignore about our lives, the little choices that we choose that are sinful and wrong in our lives. And so it says they are... um, They have have become calloused and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word for giving up is the word for no boundaries, no restraint. And so what giving up is, is me removing the barriers and removing the restraints to my unbridled desires. And so what you can see is that's a process. You may have a thousand barriers between you and and, and something that you think is, that is something I would never do, and I would never get there, and I would never make that choice. And so there's these thousand barriers, and you would never make that choice today. But you pull down a little barrier or two this afternoon. By what you do, by what you think, by what you say, by the choices you make in your relationships. Now all of a sudden I'm a little further down the road. No, I still wouldn't do that. I still wouldn't do that. A little barrier down, a little barrier down. And then there are people that I have talked to and there's people that you have talked to that have made choices that were life-wrecking choices that they would never have thought. They could never do that. Because barrier by barrier they gave themselves up. Choice by choice and action by action they gave themselves up until they got to the place where they were given up. They had removed the barriers. They had removed the restraints to whatever that thing was. They've given themselves up to sensuality. Now, obviously we attach sensuality to a very specific type of sin. Right? And it and it does. It's, that's part of it, but that's not the main word for it, right? To have sexual relations. But to be sensual is just the desires of the body, the desires of the senses. Right? And it and it has the word, the connotation of shameless or flaunting. And so they have removed restraint to flaunting what is shameful, right? They have removed restraint. They are shameless now in their pursuit of physical desires. And so the same word is used, uh, be not drunk with wine, in which is much dissipation, but be, renewed, uh, uh, but be filled with the Spirit. The same word. It's just simply talking about unrestrained or, or, or um, a shamelessness to your desires for whatever the senses want. And that's why I say I want to make sure you see yourself here because you're like, oh, I'm not doing that, so I'm good. No. There is some set of desires, some set of values and actions that you and I are pursuing. And are those matching up with my new nature in Jesus or are those going back to the old way of living, the old way of valuing, that we're apart from Jesus? I may just want some status. I may just want to be popular. I may just want to be successful. Doesn't everybody? I may just want a decent house that's a little bigger than the one I have. That's what Americans do. And barrier by barrier, we remove ourselves. And that's what we want, and that's what we pursue, and that's what we give ourselves to. And then they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Uh, I want to read for you a little bit from Romans chapter 1, because there's Like very direct word parallels. I won't point them out, but in between these two passages. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Hopefully that's familiar. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust or desires of their heart, to impurity. Again, hopefully you're recognizing these words. And then listen to this list at the end of the chapter. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanders, haters of God, insolent. This goes on and then it ends with this. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, deserve to die, they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. What is the process? We're going to talk a lot about this. Our next series is going to be in Daniel, talking about being faithful in a faithless world with a sovereign God ruling over every piece of it. We're going to talk more about it, but... I want you to see what this giving up process is. It's not a contradiction that we give ourselves up and God gives us up. Here's the process. The human being apart from Jesus begins to remove the barriers and restraints and walk in a certain direction and give themselves up. And then God at some point, when he ordains it, says, Okay, you can have you. I will pull my restraint out. I will pull my common grace out. I will pull any obstacles to you having you and doing what you want to do off. And he does that for cultures. Okay, you go have you apart from me. And he does that for people. You have made your decision and it is final. And I will let you be enslaved to your desires for the rest of your life. And there is nothing worse God can do than to say you have yourself without me. There is nothing worse God can do for a culture. There is nothing worse God can do for a human being than to say you have you without me anymore. He gives them over. And what are the key marks of this for your life and for culture? We give ourselves over. And what, what used to be done and hidden, what used to be done and dark, what used to be done, and we don't talk about that, now becomes done and flaunted. Everybody look at me and what I'm doing. Everybody, I'm going to cheer, they'd celebrate and throw a parade about what I'm doing. And you better affirm it too. You see that in the text of Romans 1. They don't just do it. They affirm those who do it. And they, when you reach that point, you're reaching the point of God giving over. God saying, okay, you can have you without me. And there's nothing more tragic in your life if God is warning you and if God is putting uh, these roadblocks road blocks in the way. There's nothing more tragic than getting to the point where there's no more roadblocks. And so they were um, Feudal in their thinking they were hard in their hearts and you notice this process right this this progress as we As we close out this point like a hardened heart a hardened control center Produces or it comes from this alienation from God We don't have God's life in us and since we don't have God's life in us. We don't think with clarity We think in dark cloudy um, Shades and versions of what we should see and then ultimately, we're designed to know God and to follow God. But our minds cannot accomplish that purpose because we're alienated in the heart of heart. And so all that stuff that's happening on the inside shows up on the outside. It shows up in your thoughts, values, and behaviors. And that's the Gentiles. But Paul's not writing this to the Gentiles, is he? He's writing it to you. And he's writing it to me. Don't let your heart harden. Don't let your life with Jesus alienate, distance, so that your mentality and your thought process is corrupt and your life and your choices become more and more impure. Right? You drive by these ponds in Statesboro and there's like this really nasty green stuff, sometimes over the whole thing. You've seen those? When he talks about impure lives, he's talking about taking a clear jar full of that stuff. It's water, but man, it is not pure. And how often do our hearts, when you were, if you were to dip a cup in your heart, how often do our hearts, if we were to hold them up, we'd be like, ah, oh, that's not pure water. That's not pure. How often if we were to dip out and look at our choices and our decisions, we'd see, like, our hearts are not pure. And that's what Paul is pressing on us, that, that you don't be that way. You don't walk with an impure heart anymore. God has made your heart pure. God has made your heart righteous. God has made your heart clean. So live with a clean heart. Don't let your heart contaminate again. And so that's his challenge to us. So if you're living that way, stop. If you're not living that way, don't let yourself drift barrier by barrier back. That's the challenge Paul is making. So it's a new semester and it's a new year. What are some habits that are in your life right now today that need to be pulled out? What are some thoughts, values, actions, and choices you're making right now today? And you have them. I do too. That God would just say, let's get those out. By the work of the gospel, by the work of God's grace, let's get those out. They're not meant to be there. What are those? Why don't you just identify one or two of them? Then we take the next step. You know Jesus is truth. Keep pressing into knowing him. You know Jesus is truth. You keep pressing into knowing him. So look at how it ends. You've got this behavior that is impure. You've got this swamp water in your heart, and it's showing up all over your life. But... That's a Gentile way of having a heart. That's not the way you learned Christ. So I want you to see the connection. You're behaving this way, or I'm sorry, the Gentiles are behaving this way, but you learned Christ a different way. What does he mean? Like, it's a very odd way of saying it. Like You wouldn't say, hey, uh, I met this guy Chris today at church. I learned Chris. You'd be like, I learned about Chris. But he very intentionally uses this set of words because it's contrasting with a whole lifestyle. Gentiles used to live this way, you used to live this way, but, contrast, different, you, not Gentiles, different, you met Jesus. What's the difference? What changed between the behavior of of the last verse to the behavior of this verse? What changed? Jesus. You see, we didn't learn a set of principles and we didn't learn a set of rules and we didn't learn a set of laws. We met Jesus personally in relationship, Meeting Jesus personally in relationship reorients our life around Jesus. And so a relationship with Jesus reorients our life to Jesus. That's why he can say it this way. Don't behave this way anymore because you've learned Jesus. And learning Jesus, knowing Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus totally reorients your life to a whole new way of, uh, of being and living and thinking and valuing. That's not the way you learn to live in Jesus. And I know you did, he says, assuming. I know you did because you heard of him. You heard the message of the gospel. I just wrote to you the message of the gospel. And you learned in him. That is, you learned in communion with or relationship with him. So you are hearing the message of the gospel. You are learning the goodness of Jesus in relationship to Jesus. You did that when you got saved, and now you're still doing that. And so what's the point? Don't go back to your old way of living because you've met Jesus. What's the difference between you and a lost person? Jesus. My wife had a, a friend in seminary she met. Like she can meet people randomly and like the baby aisle of Target. Like people will turn and run the other way when I'm walking through a store. I must just have a look about me. But Amy walks through the store and it's like a magnet. Like people that are that, that corona terrified still just drawn to go talk to her. Let's just have a conversation and become friends. All right, so that's all right. That's an aside. This happened in Target years and years and years ago. There's a lady, she meets her on the baby aisle, and she's the nicest woman you have ever met. Like, literally the nicest woman you've ever met. Super sweet, do anything in the world for us. We'd come, and uh, they would hang out, and they'd spend hours walking around Target, and they would just shop and hang out and talk, and and they had us over for uh, a Christmas dinner. Only one problem she was a Mormon. Who did not know Jesus. What's the difference between a really nice, wonderful, lost person who would do anything for you and you'd do anything for them and you and I? Certainly it we're nicer. I've met some of us. Right? It's Jesus. The only difference between us and the lost world is Jesus and the difference he makes in our lives. And that's what he's saying. And you've learned the truth that's in Jesus. It's kind of a strange statement or a strange way of saying it, but as the truth is in Jesus, the word truth is the word for reality as opposed to false and deceptive. You met Jesus. You learned about Jesus. He embodies truth. You met Jesus. You learned about Jesus. He's real. He's not false. Anything opposed to him is false. You've met Jesus. And I wonder how often we're like, yeah, Jesus is true. Jesus is truth. But how do I connect that to, I'm so frustrated by the news? Jesus is true and Jesus is truth, but I'm so angry and I'm so upset and I'm so hurt by what I see going on in the world around me. How do these two things connect? Jesus is reality. He's ultimate reality. But I look out around me and I don't know how to connect the two. And that's exactly the point Paul is making. You have learned Jesus. You're in relationship to Jesus. So press into Jesus. Let him frame reality for you because he's the ultimate reality. Let him frame truth for you because he's the ultimate truth. You know the truth, so keep pressing in to Jesus. Think about how easy it is to switch into this rule-based Christianity. How easy it is to start following a set of Christian laws and Christian rules. And you start operating with God based on, if I do good, I feel good about today, and I feel good about God... But man, if I do bad tomorrow, and I miss my quiet time, I feel bad about me, and I feel bad about how I'm doing. I feel bad about my relationship to God. And that is so opposite of what is being said in this text right here. We teach our kids rules. We teach our disciples rules. But the Holy Spirit teaches us Christ. So is Christ central to what we place in the hearts of our disciples? Is Christ central to what we place in the hearts of our kids? See, that's a whole different way of operating. It's a whole different way of relating to God. It's the way that sets you free. See, here's the truth. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. And so you didn't need a little bit of moral reconstructive surgery. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You needed resurrection. And that's exactly what the gospel gave you. It didn't just cosmetically make over the old. It, it, it took death and made it life. It took darkness and made it light. It took kingdom of Satan and child of, uh, of the devil to kingdom of God, child of God. That's what the gospel did for you. Because you were dead in your sins and trespasses. God, by this word of this gospel, who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for your sins, invaded your death to make you alive again. Because he is rich in mercy and he's rich in love. He makes us alive with Christ. And so if you're apart from Jesus, you're dead in your sins. That sin separates you from God. If you're apart from Jesus, God sent his son to die on a cross for your sins. The big ones and the little ones. The good, clean ones that nobody notices. And the desperately uh, immoral ones that, that we think of the big ticket stuff. He died for those and he rose again. And now he has sent his Holy Spirit to pursue you. He sent his Holy Spirit to convict you. He sent his Holy Spirit to show you this so that you would turn and put your faith in him. Have you turned and put your faith in him? Not faith in showing up to this church or faith in showing up to your campus ministry. Faith in Jesus. Have you done that? Because we've learned Christ. We've met Christ. And now we're called to press into Christ. Last point real quickly. Run after righteousness and being like Christ. Run after righteousness and being like Christ. Three simple gospel steps that he presses on us now. Examine and repent. So look down inside here. What's going on? If you were to dip a cup of water out of your heart and look at it, examine it. What's there? What kind of junk is there? And then we do this word called repent. We acknowledge it and we turn away from it. Second step. Detox the mind. Detox your mind a little bit. Third step, we'll drive into the text step of this. Third step, now go live out a new way of living. Now go live out of your new identity. So let's look at it. There's three what we call infinitives, two, right? We've learned to put off, to renew, to put on, right? It's already happened. It's already completed. It's already accomplished. Two of them are in the past put off and put on. One of them is a present. You keep doing this one. Renewed. So let's look at it. Put off your old self. We kind of covered that in the first point. So just really quickly, let's look at it. You've put off your old self. You've put off your old nature. It's not who you are anymore. That old self is what produced a corrupt lifestyle that deceived you into thinking this is where life is found. That old corrupt lifestyle deceived you into thinking that life and satisfaction and joy is found in the things you're pursuing and the relationships you're pursuing and the connections you're pursuing and the choices you're making. That's where life is. But it's not true. The truth is in Jesus. And then the last one there is to put on the old self. Right? You have put off the old man. That You know, you've, you've been crucified with Christ. And yet you live, but it's not you who lives. It's Christ who lives in you. And the life that you now live, but you live by faith in the Son of God. That's what's true about you. And do you know what he's like? The likeness of God. You were made in the image of God from creation. And the sole purpose for your existence was to see and bask in the wondrous glory of God And then to display that glory everywhere you are. And so when God said, be fruitful and multiply, he's like, fill the earth with a reflection of me and what I'm like. And the fall jacked all that stuff up. But now the new man is redeemed and the image of God is untarnished and restored within you and within me. And you exist now to see and bask in and encounter the goodness and glory of God. And then to put that on display everywhere you go. That's why you exist in the world now. Put on the likeness of God. Go put God on display with the way you live and choose and think and act and value and respond to all the C word that's going on in the world around you right now. Righteousness, a right standing with God and holiness, utterly unique and perfectly pure. Utterly unique, perfectly pure. And then that last one is a present tense. The key to living out this passage, the renewing and the spirit of your mind. It's like we need somebody to just pull our brains out of our bodies, take them and scrub them super clean and then stick them back in. Some people do juicing. Because you want your body clean. Some people are going to do a detox. You want your body clean. What's the passage calling us to? Juice your mind detox your mind think about all the junk that you took in this week Heaven help us. Maybe you watch the news And the entire goal of the news this week was I want you to think a certain way and I want you to feel a certain way And I bet if you watched enough of it, you did You felt angry and hopeless and frustrated or you felt like vindicated or you felt like my side's right and that side's crazy Because there is a whole industry designed to control your thoughts and to thinking and feeling the way somebody wants you to think and feel. Be renewed. I don't care if you listen to rap, R&B, country, classic, or modern. The vast, overwhelming theme of every single one of them, sex and sexuality. Right? What words did you sing? What words did you bob your head to? I can't dance. If you can, you had rhythm when you did it. Go look at the lyrics and go look at what they're talking about. And it's talking about objectifying your body. And it's talking about uh, inflaming the desires of your body. It's talking about connecting your body to somebody else's body. The dominant theme. But man, I'm sorry I can't dance. If I could, like I would, right? (laughs) Think about the movies you watched and how it desensitized you to physical relationships outside of covenant. Think about the shows and movies we watch and how it desensitized you to the kind of language that should kind of grate against your ear and your heart. Think about the movies and shows you've watched and how it desensitized you to be on the side of the bad guy. We wanted Dexter to get away. We want Walter White to get away. We were hoping the cop brother-in-law didn't catch up to him. Think how twisted that is to God. And we fill our minds and we fill our hearts with this inundation of stuff. And there's times we just need to step back and detox. Because I promise if you were to detox. Oh, and social media. We won't go there. Like these outrage echo chambers or these vanity image echo chambers that ramp up our division and ramp up our tribalism or ramp up our, 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 our vain self-images. And we're so desensitized that it doesn't phase us. It doesn't even register anymore. What if you were to take a week off of all of it? I bet at the end of the week when you went back, you would find there was a fresh sensitivity to the kinds of things we are all seeing. There'd be a fresh sensitivity to the kind of things we're all singing, the kind of things we're watching and hearing. That's one of the things I'm going to challenge you with as a practical application. Take a one-week media fast. Because we want our hearts resensitized. We want our minds renewed. We want them detoxed from all the stuff that's gotten in there to where we don't even register anymore. So what new way of living is the gospel calling you to and empowering from you? What new habit, spiritually healthy habit, is the gospel pressing on you to take up this year so that you intentionally, this year, live a little different, live with a little more growth, have changed. You are holy. Go pursue it. A few practical things. Here we go. Spend some time repenting and removing. I know repentance is a dirty word. Like, that's that, that thing those old people say, and it's so condemning and just. No. Repentance is the key that unlocks life. Repentance is like if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. Repentance is the key to life and refreshing and it's the key to taking a swamp water heart and making it pure because God delights to hear your confession and place cleanliness in the place of it. And so all the ways you've slipped back into an old way of living, an old way of thinking, an old way of valuing, all the ways you've kind of just bopped along to this desensitizing, immersed culture. Examine your heart. Examine the water that comes out when you dip in your heart. And then very specifically, repent of the things that are contaminating. And the beautiful thing is God, God promises. You're already righteous, and he promises to clean it up. Second, restart the healthy habits. We call them the disciplines of grace. Are you in the word every day? If not, start. Read a chapter a day make one note. Keep it as simple as you can possibly keep it. Read a chapter. You can read the, the reading plan we have. You can read with a friend. Read a chapter make one note. That's all. If you're already doing that, maybe we got four questions on the the bookmark we hand out. Dive into those four questions. Go a little deeper. But just take up a habit or progress in the habit. Maybe it's prayer. I think you could pray five minutes a day. If you're not praying right now, you could pray five minutes a day. You could start that today. You could do that every day. If you're already praying, you could add five minutes to your prayer life. You could balance it out with like an Acts model that we're spending time adoring and confessing. We're spending time thanking and asking that there's this blended prayer life. You could do that. Maybe you need to add a fast right now. Maybe you need to add a fast once a month. Maybe you need to add a fast once a week. Take up these habits that access grace in your life. Not, they, they don't earn you anything. They just tap you into the grace of God. And then lastly, do a one-week media fast that we just talked about. And the goal is simple, that your mind is renewed, Your mind is detoxed so that there's a fresh sensitivity to the things that are pleasing to the Lord, to the voice of the Lord. And there's a fresh sensitivity to the kind of things that take you away from him. So it's a time of fresh starts. The choices you make today will determine at the end of the semester what do you look back on. The choices you make today will determine at the end of the year what do you look back on. You're holy. Pursue holiness. Let's pray. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask. We're so tempted to this old life. We so easily go back to anger, back to frustration, back to division. We so easily go back to valuing stuff and success and acclaim and money. We go back and we value and and want more things. God, that's us and our hearts drift. So we want to pray like the song says, bind our wandering hearts to you bind our hearts back to you. God, we've learned the precious truth of Jesus. We've met him. Oh God, would you connect him deep into our hearts and all the way through our hearts into our lives? That knowing him would be everything to us. Would you give us a fresh sensitivity in our hearts to him, to his glory, to his beauty, to his wonder? God, I pray for that. Pray for that for me. Pray for that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, you can't go try to live new until Jesus makes you new. Has he ever done that in your life? Has he ever convicted you of your sin? Has he ever shown you Jesus who died on a cross for your sins? Have you ever turned and believed? So you can come, we can pray together. Um, you can fill out the white sheet in your bulletin. There's a place for you to ask for questions or, or say you need to talk to somebody about that, and we'll talk to you about it. But maybe as you listen to this message, the Spirit is pointing out some of those things in your heart that you need Him to pour grace back over the top of. He's pointing those things in your heart where you've desensitized to Him and drifted from Him. He's pointed those things out in your life that has that shown you've removed barriers and walked away from Him. He's pointing out the spiritual drift and the life drift. And you want to come here or you want to do it right where you are. God, would you just pour fresh grace, clean water over me again? How do you need to respond? We're going to stand and sing. And you can respond here or you can respond right where you are. Let's stand together.